0: Little Dirk is one of the most notorious rappers in the Chicago drill era of hip hop music. With almost five million followers on Instagram, it's safe to say that Little Dirk has a solid fan base that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Dirk's melodic style of drill music is a big reason why he stood out compared to other Chicago rappers during his rise to stardom. But just like most of the other Chicago rappers, A big part of Lil Durk's appeal was the authenticity of his music. You knew that Lil Durk was rapping about real-life experiences and not just some make-believe nonsense to sell records. In addition to that, Lil Durk was also respected by a lot of his peers due to his efforts of speaking out against gang violence in Chicago. And the reason why he gained so much respect for that is because Lil Durk actually lived that kind of lifestyle before rapping, and wants his fans, or just anyone in general, to know that gang life is not something that you ever want to be a part of. Curious what kind of street antics Lil Durk got into? Well, we have you covered. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Lil Durk. Little Dirk had his first documented arrest in October of 2011. According to multiple reports, Little Dirk was charged with a few different gun charges, with the main one being possession of a firearm with a defaced serial number. A gun charge is no joke in Chicago, so this was a pretty serious first charge, especially with the serial number being scratched off the gun. Having no serial number gives the cops a good reason to think that the weapon is being used for criminal-like reasons. At his sentencing, Little Dirk pled guilty to a reduced charge of aggravated, unauthorized use of a weapon. Little Dirk spent three months in jail and was later released on bond, but was later sent back to serve 87 more days. Even though this was Little Dirk’s first conviction, it still made Dirk a convicted felon. Little Dirk's next arrest was on June 5th, 2013. According to court records, Little Dirk was hanging around on South Green Street, Chicago, when police approached him to investigate a call of a man with a gun. This must have caught Little Dirk off guard because he apparently took a loaded 40 caliber handgun out of his waistband and quickly threw it in his car. Little Dirk... Obviously wasn't very stealthy when doing this because the police clearly saw Dirk do this, which gave them enough probable cause to search his vehicle. After a quick search, Chicago police arrested Little Dirk right on the spot. Dirk's charge was unlawful use of a weapon by a felon. Little Dirk was held on a $100,000 bond and his lawyer would later claim to have nine affidavits from witnesses who can confirm Little Dirk was innocent. One witness even admitted that the gun was his and not Little Dirk's. Dirk was released about a month later on July 18th, 2013. Little Dirk's next run-in with the law wasn't an arrest, but rather a shootout that took place while he was on tour. Sources say that a shootout happened just hours before Little Dirk's scheduled performance at the Theater of Living Arts in Center City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The shootout left Little Dirk's tour bus damaged by gunfire and also left one man dead. Little Dirk was not arrested or questioned by the police. No other updates were made public on this situation as well. This next incident is just an update from when he was arrested on June 5, 2013 on felony gun charges. According to court records, Little Dirk was ordered to court on August 19, 2016, where the judge dropped all of his charges. The judge must have noticed that he was changing his ways and admired that he was speaking out against Chicago gang violence. Shortly after, Little Dirk moved to Atlanta, where he became completely focused on music and even claimed to be a studio rat. Little Dirk managed to stay out of trouble for about three years. But it all came to an end after Dirk became a wanted man by the Fulton County Police Department. Multiple reports claimed that Little Dirk had a warrant issued for his arrest and planned to charge Little Dirk with criminal intent to commit murder, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during commission of a felony, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and associating with a criminal street gang to participate in a crime. And here's the kicker. All of these charges stem from the King Vaughn incident that we covered in a video a few days ago. The link to that video will be in the top left corner and in the description below. I highly suggest you check that out to get more details on this situation. Anyways, Duke's Jeep was allegedly the car used in the shooting, and Dirk, Vaughn, and another OTF affiliate Bay Zoo, or Zoo were all reported to be in the car at the time of the shooting. Since the situation was so serious, Atlanta is charging all of them with the same charges regardless of who actually pulled the trigger. King Vaughn was the first to get arrested, and then it was Zoo, and now all that was left was Lil Dirk. A few days after hearing about the warrants for his arrest, Lil Dirk posted on his Instagram story, Turning myself in tomorrow. This was a huge shock to his fans since nobody expected him to be involved in a shooting, especially after all his success. The next day, Dirk dropped a song called Turn Myself In, and just a few hours later, he actually did turn himself in.
1: Little Dirk fell on those times I went when the Boost Mobile, he passed, Boost Mobile Store crash, I mean Boost Mobile Store launch, I'm going through depression, lose relationship, lose the Boost Mobile Store. Fall on hard times, I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, Right. You go from all that to working out of work, that's humbling. I go from...
2: Yo, there's nothing worse, it, it's bad to be down, Mm-hmm. but nothing worse than to go up and then come down.
1: Yo. That's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar mm. working at a warehouse living in my sister's house with five kids at the time she had five kids in the three bedroom four bedroom I I made it uncomfortable yeah. I made the living uncomfortable yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom set I had an air bed the Mercury Cougar the Jordan, opened open from the inside I had to open it from the outside mm. listen to me that's when I said, and I knew it looking back. <laughs> Yo, you finna get the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, <clears throat> why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were gonna fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like a $2,000 check, yeah. right? I said, how do I do it? Thinking, I go and I call. I know the next day they're going to fire me. So I call psychiatric uh, hospital staff insurance and say, I'm thinking about hurting somebody. They go, are you thinking about hurting yourself? I go, no, I'm thinking about hurting my manager. So they go, okay, let's come in for a psych evaluation. I go, what happened? I go, yo, listen, I'm just randomly crying, having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself, punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. They was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week. Boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were going to fire me that night.
2: Mm.
1: But... I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> That's funny. in counseling, I find my depression wow. of what I was going through where i was at mind state what i didn't deal with
2: what did you find out about yourself through counseling
1: through the traumas that i was living through i've never dealt with them i was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend like i made it to where it didn't exist so they taught me and i remember she was like giving me different exercises and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened, it's okay. It's part of life. That I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. Yeah. So after that.
2: If you had to deal with it head on.
1: Boom. Wow. So then I realized, it took me a little while, I went back and um, when I went back to that job, kicked in and said, why are you even here? I got the bonus. Mm-hmm. Got the crystal ball. Right. I That's came right. back a week before. Right. I got the bonus, right? Listen, <laughs> right. they were upset, right? Shout out to ABW out there in Kennesaw. Yeah, I got the check, <laughs> right? Um, I went and I said, why am I even here? I went and applied for Wells Fargo. I became personal banker
2: guys from warehouse personal banker
1: got back in my suit got it (laughs) right right back to the old gym. so i got back in my suit yeah (laughs) so uh i got back in the suit um that's when i started learning the banking products i started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans they couldn't get approved for loans at all like the the ratio for people who get loans, I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like a $2 million mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a $2 million mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a, oh, you got 200000 Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a $2 million mortgage? Yeah, no, listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo, right? people will come in they have two million dollar mortgages they will be able to come in and go looking for a personal loan they can
2: come and get th- when I when I when I go out of town I actually go to peachy yeah, I go in it's 750 a day yes and he said, yo, he'll just go down there, pay the 750 yes. leave, they go pick it That's up. That's
3: what I was doing before I got my lot. And what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peachy this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it.
2: Right I next had, door.
3: Um, here's, the, here's the clutch, clutch play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Way, uh, W-A-E, W-A-Y, W-A-Y, Way, yeah. W-A-Y. And I was paying half the price that Peachy charges.
2: On way. On way. Yo, they be having joints for $2, That's
3: what I was paying. $2, because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not going to be paying $36 for these parking tickets. I'm going to drop the car off at the airport, Mm -hmm. parking lot, peachy, pay $2, and then charge the guests for the the $2. (laughs) And then, so the beautiful thing is they'll pick the car up, from Peachy, going about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm, Smooth process. Perfect, perfect. perfect. Smooth process. I love it, it. If I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right, they'll take the train, because Atlantic Station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport, so they don't have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. It was a smooth ride to the airport, pick the car up, and move on from there.
2: So what's so uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for it's only two years. Two years, We're going crazy. And you're just now you just now put out your course and yeah, that's a fact. Yo, I, I don't know how many courses you sold <laughs> like the like the first release. Yeah, right?
3: yeah it's ridiculous. It's knocking on my door for this. Yes. because people been asking you for yes. for two years, yes. yo. Put me on. Yes, I've been sharing this. Yeah, and I and I Right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they, they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus, he he was on my neck, mm-hmm. Neo on my neck about dropping a course, yeah. calling me, bro, you gotta drop course. You know how he talking. Right. You gotta drop the course. Or we're gonna do it. <laughs> oh, 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 chill out, chill What you mean you're gonna drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I knew setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Because mm. I'm so used to giving out the game for free, and enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it. Yeah. Right? But that. I got a bar with that where if I don't charge, you know how meals to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not gonna put it into action. They're not yeah. gonna respect it. You already know that how For that sure. works, too. So I said, cool, I'm gonna charge. See, I'm gonna test out the price. I charged $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course, I'm doing pre-sales, cash at me. I got. Cash <laughs> at. Cash at went crazy. Man, look at my cash up right here. Where my phone at? Let me see. Cash up right here. T- it you wasn't a link.
2: It wasn't a no credit card. Straight.
3: And they trust me. Most people are like, nah. That's a fact. And
2: I believe because you built a. And, you know, for those that know you, know, like, you are a very credible person, yeah, yeah, very honest. Like, oh, it's man. not. We know that, like, Steve. money ain't your biggest thing. Yeah. You feel me? So. When you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for
3: it. I rock That's a with it. That's fact. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, I would have saved that $2,800. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st- stages to the point where I now just... Yo, here's the course information, if you need to know, I have it all documented here. So what's,
2: what's, what's in the course? Talk to me about what's in the The whole process.
3: Course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody <laughs> goes to the dealership, you the think finesse. you're gonna be there in there for an hour? How long do most people be in a dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until, until you feel like you just wanna die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these, per- oh, you need warranty? It's just going to be an extra $20 on your monthly payment. <laughs> you sign here.
4: <laughs> man, you me. give me the keys, man. Give me
3: the money. It prevents that in that section. Right. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name, or do you want to be a broker where, you're a middleman between the cars, mm-hmm. meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover. Somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle of say, yo, you need a Range Rover. David got it for you. He charges two hundred dollars a day. You can pay him directly and run me my fifty dollars so to let you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman.
2: Yo, let me ask you this, because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a, uh, I, I think I made a post about it and um a guy uh he sent me a dm about um his car
3: this is the keys this is what it looked like da, 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 da. my boy Jacoby, again the one who told me about Relay Rides which mm. was Turo at the time right. he said yo i got i know a dude who has a parking lot mm. at the airport here's his number check him out name is um, Kareem. So I called him, went, checked the, the spot out. It looked like a full rental car company. right? But it was empty. It was next to Enterprise, next to Hertz, wow. next to a car rental company, um, I mean car van company that rents out vans, and um, Peachy Air Lot, Air, Airport parking. Where So yeah. when you go to the airport, you can park your car yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's where I park all the time. It was right there. I mm. said, yo, what can we do to do the deal? He told me, well, I got the spot for my own car rental company, but I'm not doing it right now. So you could rent each space for $100 a car. I said, run it. So I'm paying $4,000 uh, a month to have it. What about the office space? Can I get it? I'm not using it right now, you can use it. Cool, I'm using it. Oh, wow. Long story short, he ended up not being on the I basically took over the whole thing. Renovated it, put the sign up, got a whole car rental lot. My own car was lot in Atlanta, Georgia, at the airport. Wow. So when I when I have on my listing on Turo, and now it says pickup address, airport. But what's crazy is, it's two minutes away from the airport. However, I still was charged a delivery fee. So anybody who needed a car at the airport, you know I always 120.
2: Brother Joshua was telling me, he, de- like, yeah, he was like, yo, the... Um... He was telling me that his his delivery fee was $50. So he'll drive.
3: There and backwards just one way.
2: 50, he said his delivery fee is $50. He goes deliver for $50. Yeah. But then I looked on yours and I saw it was
3: 120 Yes, and, $120, And, sir. and
2: I'm, I'm going to call Joshua today. Like, yo, you know I'm mad he charged $120 for See, delivery. That's our brother.
3: He got two Porsches on there. Yeah he, he, the yeah, he got
2: five cars all together.
3: Yeah. He started getting calls. I'm like, bro, you ain't tell me you, you joined a tour. All oh, I mean, he ask me all these questions. But, Where did these cars come from?
2: Right, right. Yeah, brother Davy. Davey? My yeah. brother
3: Davy, brother Ed. Like, a lot of the people that see me, they now understand the process. It just makes sense. Yeah, I'm, first off, and I feel
2: some type of way because I was the first to know. You so, was the first to know the lab lab the last to take action. Day,
3: <laughs> That's legit what happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's legit what happened. Yo. I told you first, like, bro. You gotta know about what I'm doing right it now. It didn't
2: make sense to me.
3: I, I saw from your face the way you looked at me, I'm like, Oh, he just don't get
2: it. Uh thanks to God for uh But like, like now he, it
3: flourishes and <laughs> it's a time for everything.
2: We out here. So, so literally I I just got the um a Range Rover twenty seventeen. Yes, sir. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go grab uh probably three more this week.
3: Right, right, yeah. right. And the cars don't need to be new. So, where do you,
2: where, okay, so somebody that does have a lot and doesn't have a target next to them, where do they keep the car? Where do they keep so the
3: car? So, based on my students, they tell me that they park it at their homes. Some people are not comfortable with that. They'll deliver it whenever they get a new booking. They'll meet them at Publix. Mm. They'll meet them at, they'll park it somewhere, even on the street, incognito. So, depending on what type of car you have. If you have a regular car, you can just park it
5: at
6: yeah, for sure.
3: a regular spot, right? But if you have a luxury car, it's like, it sticks out like a, Uh, a sore thumb. Thumb. So, depending on what type of car you have, depending on what area you live in, you just gotta figure it out. It's not not difficult. You just gotta figure out. A lot of people harp on all the details though in the beginning before they start. Mm. I didn't do that. I literally said, I have a car already, let me see what it's gonna do. I uploaded it, instant booking, same day booking. Now I'm forced to figure it out, Mm. all right? Mm. Yes, I took an L. Yeah. As far as the money-wise, yeah. but I got it back.
2: Yeah, for sure.
3: For to where sure. I made $2,600 profit off of one car.
2: In and in your course, you teach how to not take these Ls? Yeah,
3: exactly. Okay. I took an L with my Maserati. Shane, Shane uh, that's my guy, but he didn't tell me how to, how to, uh, how to to what are they called, um, look at the car properly. The mm-hmm. car I'm purchasing, I didn't know the Maserati that I bought, all the tires were, were bald in the inside. On the outside, oh, it's perfect, good, good tires. I was driving, tire got flat, I went to Firestone, I pulled in Firestone, the dude pulled out the tire and said, look at this tire, man. Show me how bald and naked that tire was.
2: Wow. He said, you
3: were yeah, I just got the car. He said, this is the most horrible tire. Matter of fact, look at the rotors. You need new rotors. Went to the back, this one needs a new one. I'm thinking he's just lying to me because this is my first time in the car industry really. So I'm like, I know mechanics, they're known for being, yeah. you know what I'm saying, finesses, i right. like, man, you lying right now. He said, but he had no reason to lie. Firestone, that's not, he wasn't He's that of person. It's not a commission person. type joint. Yeah, it's not his own shot. He's like, I'm here to do my hourly, whatever the case right. may be, right? So he told me that you see these ridges on these rotors? These are not supposed to be here. Right, right, <laughs> right. You see how rough this one is, you hear that? That ain't supposed <laughs> to be here. Like, you dude, nobody told me that, <laughs> so I had to take. I call uh, Maserati. All right, cool. I'm just buying the parts. How much for a new rotors? On uh, how many cars? How many how many tires you do? I need on need all four. Twenty eight hundred dollars.
2: Yeah. So so um so you just find a place to keep your cars yes. and you just kind of keep rolling. You know what Joshua used to the um. The, the, the Park and Ride Airport joint? So
1: I fell on those times. I went when the Boost Mobile. He passed. Boost Mobile Store crash. I mean, Boost Mobile Store launch. I'm going through depression. Lose relationship. Lose the Boost Mobile Store. Fall on hard times. I went and started working at a warehouse. Wow. Yeah, right? You go from all that to working at a warehouse. That's
2: humbling. I go from... Yo, there's nothing worse. There's it, it's bad to be down, mm-hmm. but nothing worse than to go up and then come down.
1: Yo, that's tough. I go from living in a condo in Alpharetta, driving a G-Class Benz truck, AMG, to a 1996 Mercury Cougar, mm. working at a warehouse. Living in my sister's house with five kids at the time, she had five kids in the three-bedroom, four-bedroom. I I made it uncomfortable. Yeah. I made the living uncomfortable. Yeah. I didn't even have a bedroom; set. I had an air bed. The Mercury Cougar, the Jordan, open from the inside. I had to open it from the outside. Mm. Listen to me. That's when I said, and I knew it. Looking back. Yo, you finna get to the bar. I've never, I was going through depression and didn't know it. You know how I found out? I'm working at a warehouse and I go, why am I here? Once again, I'm poor hustling. I wanted to, they were going to fire me. I needed to make it to Christmas because we get Christmas bonus. It's like Mm a $2,000 check, right? I said, how do I do it? thinking i go and i call i know the next day they're going to fire me so i call psychiatric uh hospital staff insurance and say i'm thinking about hurting somebody they go are you thinking about hurting yourself i go no i'm thinking about hurting my manager so they go okay let's come in for a psych evaluation i go what happened i go yo listen i'm just randomly crying having outbreaks, real emotional, and it's just like, I don't know why it's always him as a person, like when I'm dreaming, it's him that I'm seeing on myself, punching and like physically attacking. I don't know what it is. It was like, well, what kind of hours you working? I'm working 60 hours a week, boom, boom, boom. She take me off work that day. They were gonna fire me that night. Mm. But I've talked myself so much into this story to get out of work. They made me go to counseling. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> in counseling, I find my depression Wow! of what I was going through, where I was at, mind state, what I didn't deal with. What did
2: you find out about yourself through counseling?
1: through the traumas that I was living through, I've never dealt with them. I was uncomfortable even talking about my best friend. Like, I made it to where it didn't exist. So, they taught me and I remember she was like giving me different exercises and she had to make me comfortable even speaking and acknowledging what happened, things that happened, it's okay. It's part of life, that I had to cope with that, with the fact that that relationship I had is gone. So after that.
2: You had to deal with it head on.
1: Boom. So then I realized, it took me a little while, I went back and um, when I went back to that job, kicked in and said why are you even here i got the bonus Mm -hmm. got the crystal ball i came back a week before i got the bonus right (laughs) Right. listen they were upset right shout out to abw out there in kennesaw yeah i got the check right um i went and i said why am i even here i went apply for wells fargo i became a personal banker
2: it from warehouse personal banker
1: got back in my suit got it <laughs> right right so, back to the old gym. so i got back in my suit yeah <laughs> so uh i got back in the suit um and that's when i started learning the banking products i started learning that people couldn't get approved for business loans they couldn't get approved for loans at all like the the ratio for people who get loans mm-hmm. I was giving loans to people who I would look and they would have like a two million dollar mortgage. What? Yeah, they would have a two million dollar mortgage. They can come and get a loan. Oh, you got a? Oh, you got two hundred thousand? Yeah, nah, you can't get nothing. Hold on, a two million dollar mortgage? Yeah, no. Listen, I was working in Roswell, Wells Fargo. Right. People will come in, they have two million dollar mortgages, they will be able to come in and go, looking for a personal loan, they can come and get the-
4: What distinguishes incest from sexual assault is that for sexual assault, the state would have to prove that the sex was non-consensual, but for incest, even consensual sex, is considered a crime in the state of Nevada if it's an incestuous relationship. Ostensibly, the state chooses to regulate it as a morality issue and to prevent imbraiding and increased risk of birth defect.
3: Compact, sedan, and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Two row, you get to choose a car, no hidden fees, everything is clear as day. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving my, this is how it happened. Justin, new ACO. I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte. I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car. He hopped in his car. What car? It was an S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. But <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: y'all about the same height,
3: too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he. Grew me so much. On my, my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get another a car. I'm tired of this. Driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> that's how I ended up getting the testimony. So that's um, the question. Why wouldn't somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budget or traditional rental car um, company versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars.
2: Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit checks and credit cards? I know you sometimes... Uh, there was a point in my life where you're so you say okay I'm gonna go get I'm gonna get a rental car but you never know what they're gonna ask for yeah exactly like, yo know, that it,
3: my heart always you don't pops, know if you're gonna get it, if get, you're gonna get it they need like, credit card yeah yeah need, yeah so yeah. with Turo you don't need to have a credit card that's another benefit of it or the platforms like Turo even a personal booking. It all depends on how somebody wants to run their business, but usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age, Mm. you have to put it on a certain deposit, certain credit. Uh, What else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a local.
2: True, true,
3: true. Of course they do it to protect your business, I understand, but some people don't have those options, so they need other options to be able to get a car to run out.
2: Gotcha. So, so they really, really Toro. They'll let anybody who has the driver's of license. They,
3: of course, they go do background checks. Of course, there's a, 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 a vetting process. Of course, all that, and of course, the car's insured. But it's not as difficult like as gotcha. the traditional gotcha. rental car. Gotcha. Gotcha. And
2: you can just find what you like, like right. something right. nice.
3: Gotcha. That's the key piece. Gotcha. It's options. I got better so, options.
2: So, income
3: potential. Walk me through income
2: potential. Income
3: depending on what car you have, it always falls around anywhere cash flow.ing This is net profit, cash flowing anywhere from three hundred dollars a month to even upwards of what I was making, three thousand dollars per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging sixteen hundred. My my Tesla was averaging twenty six hundred. Um, profit. Plus, after profit. Expenses. Profit. 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 This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my, my C300, it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the, the $800 range. Mm -hmm. So with me, I have my receipts. So I show people
2: cash flow. Cash flow is cash flow.
3: So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check-ins and checkouts but it wasn't labor intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing Mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. Mm. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small, small fleet, three cars, I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300, they were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business, that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the car <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was, so, it was amazing leverage. Where do, we, where do you keep all these cars? All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So I initially, remember where I was keeping my cars? Target. Yes. Once I the went theory. from three and I turned up, I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. The Target... Um, G- General Manager called me and said, um, is this is Matthew, are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you gotta move them.
5: So You're ODing right
3: now. I, I, I did the most. I, I forced <laughs> You're him. ODing right now. I was getting away with the three cars, but as soon as I tried to bring them all there, then now I was like, all right, I'll move them. Can, it, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool, it will give you a week. I think it was during, it was, it was, it was during a big weekend where they, need, they definitely needed the space. Right. And now, my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures, you can see on the cameras, they showed me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures near the cars, oh, all that right. crazy stuff. So, I had to figure it out. I had to move all my cars to my apartment, one of my other apartments in Norcross. I got a picture of it. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away with it for two weeks until they called me and said, You gotta move these cars. <laughs> right. like, by God's grace, by God's grace, as I was posting, every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, Look, I got another car.
4: In terms of the severity of penalty, possession would be the least serious narcotic offense. Then would come possession for sales of narcotics, would be more serious. than actual sales of narcotics and finally, trafficking of narcotics. And in essence, the penalties go up like steps uh, with each level of narcotics possession. Nevada narcotics laws are actually the harshest in the country. And even sale of a small quantity of narcotics can subject an individual to substantial periods of incarceration. As a matter of fact, under the Nevada Trafficking Law, sale of more than 28 grams of a controlled narcotic can subject an individual to life in prison upon conviction. Uh, although the, the statutes are broken up into uh, possession, uh, possession for sale, sale of narcotics, and trafficking laws, uh, because uh, the amounts in, uh, to be considered trafficking in Nevada are so low. As a matter of fact, four grams or higher can can constitute trafficking in Nevada. Um, if you're charged for trafficking, you know you really need to obtain counsel because the penalties are very harsh here. The good news with regard to narcotics laws in the state of Nevada is. Although the laws themselves are very harsh, typically prosecuting agencies are fairly reasonable about negotiating resolutions in these cases. For example, um, one case that got a substantial amount of media attention was when Paris Hilton was arrested for possessing cocaine. And um, it was originally a felony charge. There was a lot of immediate, immediate attention. Other celebrities and, and certainly a lot of people that aren't famous, you know, go to Nevada, specifically Las Vegas, to, to have a good time, to party, uh, and choose to engage in narcotic activity. Um, most often, although the penalties uh, are severe, um, for a simple possession of narcotics, it's very common to be able to negotiate a resolution that involves a plea to a misdemeanor offense so that uh, a fun time in Las Vegas on the weekend doesn't necessarily turn into a lifetime of uh, difficulty uh, and a, a felony record. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you and your future. The penalties depend on whether or not you have priors. For a first-time offense, it would be treated the same as a DUI, alcohol. Uh, minimum two days in jail, up to six months in jail. Uh, For a second time offense, it's a minimum of 10 days in jail. And for a third time offense, within seven years, you're looking at a felony with a minimum one year in state prison. Additionally, you would be required to do a DUI class, which you could do online you'd be required to attend a victim impact program, and you'd be required to pay fines and fees. Here in the state of Nevada, if you've been in an accident while driving with a prohibited substance, including marijuana, and someone's been injured, the penalties go up substantially. And you're looking at up to 20 years in state prison if you were in a DUI, marijuana-related accident where somebody was injured.
3: I need a boss over here, I got somebody hit. Somebody, I need a boss over here, I got somebody hit. I got somebody hit. What's up guys. Open
1: up. He's, in, he's got
7: here. I got somebody that's hit back What's up guys. Look out, guys. Watch out, Watch out. Okay, get out of here. I got somebody Look okay, Look okay, okay.
8: A popular hip hop podcaster arrested in connection with the deadly shooting at Irving Plaza last May faced a judge today.
9: All right, as Lisa Everett shows us, federal prosecutors think they've got more than enough evidence to prove that he is the trigger man.
8: There were some stunning claims in a case here at federal court that has disturbed many in New York's hip-hop community. A federal prosecutor says a popular podcast host, known for shooting off his mouth, was also shooting off a gun inside Irving Plaza last May. But his attorney denies the charges. Thirty-one-year-old Daryl Campbell, better known as multimedia personality Taxstone, went before a judge in federal court to be arraigned on two federal gun charges, including gun possession by a convicted felon. His attorney, Kenneth J. Montgomery, told me outside the courthouse, "Campbell is not guilty. We deny all those charges." In court papers, federal prosecutors say DNA retrieved from the Caltech 9-millimeter handgun on the grip. The magazine and the trigger indicate it was Campbell's weapon and that he fired the shots that wounded rapper Troy Av and two others and killed Troy Av's bodyguard, Ronald Bangham McFadder, last May. Montgomery says there's more to all of this.
9: Obviously, there's going to be discovery turned over and more facts and perhaps 3,500 materials in the federal system, so I'm going to reserve any comments about facts until the appropriate time.
8: Prosecutors say Troy Ave picked up the gun after being shot and that it's the one we see him allegedly holding in the video released by the NYPD. In court, the pro-
4: There are A variety of circumstances in which self-defense may become an issue in a criminal case. Uh, It could be a situation where somebody uses deadly force and they've killed somebody and the defendant is claiming I use that force to protect myself or to protect somebody else because under the law in the state of Nevada You have the same right to defend yourself as you do to use self-defense to defend somebody else who's in a position of vulnerability. Additionally, under the law in the state of Nevada, you have the right to use deadly force against a burglar that comes into your home with the intent to commit a felony or cause substantial bodily harm to somebody. We represent a lot of people involved in disturbances, fist fights. Often alcohol is a factor, but it's very common in Las Vegas. People are coming to have a good time. And sometimes, you know, things get out of hand uh, and people get into fights when they're out trying to have a good time. It's not uncommon in those situations for the police to come and just arrest everybody and charge everybody with a crime. Uh, However, there's nothing in the law that says that you have to tolerate someone else's abuse. So if somebody else is physically aggressive with you, um, you have the right to defend yourself. So if you've been charged with a battery and that battery stemmed from some type of of quarrel um, where you felt legitimately that you had to defend yourself and used physical force in doing so, Um, it's important that you hire an attorney that will aggressively defend you and assert your right to self-defense in order to either Convince the prosecutor to drop the charges altogether, or uh, to win your case uh, with a self-defense argument at trial. Another area where self-defense can come into play is with rela- in relation to battery, domestic violence, a quarrel between, for example, a husband and a wife. Um, often it's a neighbor that calls the police. The police come, they may hear arguing back and forth. In Nevada, most often it seems that law enforcement tends to arrest the, the person that got the worst of it so that if somebody has a mark, the presumption is, well, the other party was the aggressor, the other party should be taken in. But it doesn't always work out that way. It could be that, um, that the person that has the injury is the one that started the fight. And it's not always the man that, that does the battering. Sometimes um, you know, a woman might throw something or a woman might swing at, punch her domestic partner. And the, the man might simply be responding or defending himself. In those situations, self-defense certainly may come into play, and an aggressive uh, defense attorney will assert that uh, you were only you—you know—you were exercising your right to self uh, your, to, to defend yourself, which is which is perfectly lawful. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you or a loved one has been charged with a criminal offense in Las Vegas or throughout the state of Nevada, trust in me and my legal team to get your case dismissed or otherwise negotiate a resolution that causes minimal harm to you and your future.
10: Pretty complicated, pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six. And those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via chapter four under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sorta, the defendant's sorta back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted, for example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court marshals, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. Know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months, and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a... A three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence, it's a three-pointer, you have a time period. has to be within 15 years of the sentence, and you'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred, and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15 year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15 year time period, it's also countable. Okay. These time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult, um, prior sentences. And I, as I mentioned earlier, you also count, sentences that occurred before uh age 18. It's a little bit different here you get you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months and it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release a two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years and a one-pointer for all others now there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules and we can't point them all out for you but the key ones especially for you new folks the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, Relevant conduct under forty one point two a one. It says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed Upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense if you had a drug case for example Where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current? offense conduct Okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as prior, as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but you know on that point. But the basic rule is, if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the 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 current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it. as uh, you're not going to include it as uh, a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual 41.2 A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately, and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence. One sentence for purposes of 481.1. Uh, if the if a defendant comes in for a sent in a prior sentence, and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence. And, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision. Sort of like the question: Well, how do how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a prior a probation sentence where then the probation.
4: A person's home is their castle, and it's a rare occasion that law enforcement is going to violate the sanctity of your home. But if law enforcement does knock at your door, you would ask them, "Do you have a warrant? If they have a warrant signed by a judge, let them in. Law enforcement may also try to get your consent to search. They may step in when you open the door and say, we're going to search your home. At that point, you absolutely have the right to say, no, I need you to leave. You don't have my permission to search. The only circumstance that the police can come into your home without a warrant would be if there was an exigent circumstance, such as a health and safety check if law enforcement had the reasonable belief that someone in your home might be injured or if they are in hot pursuit of a fleeing felon who just ran into your home. The bottom line is you have the right to be secure in your home, and you have the right to say no to the police if they try to search your home without a warrant.
11: We're going to consider those things that occurred in avoiding detection or responsibility for the offense of conviction. And those things may be occurring even after the offense of conviction, but there's some attempt to avoid detection or responsibility. Still, temporally, it's expanded a little bit, but there's still this nexus, this connection with our offense of conviction. Now, under A1, the who is going to be... Everything the defendant did, we have, uh, you know, a lot more legalistic type language. We say if the defendant committed an act or if the defendant aided an act or abetted it or counseled it, commanded it, induced it, procured it, willfully caused it. But basically, it's like, did the defendant do it? But we're also going in some instances, look at the acts of others. Now, the acts of others we require a further analysis to occur. and this, we refer to it as our three-part analysis. First, you have to determine the scope of the defendant's jointly undertaken activity. And then you have to make the determination, well, these acts of others, were they in furtherance of this undertaking my defendant was engaged in? Would a reasonable person have foreseen that engaging in undertaking with other people, that they may have done these kinds of acts in furtherance of this undertaking. The defendant committed the robbery, okay? So now we're asking about the specific offense characteristics of chapter two consideration. We know A1 covers chapter two considerations. And the question is, was a firearm possessed? Well, the analysis is this act occurred during the offense of conviction, he possessed the gun during the offense of conviction. It was an act that was committed by the defendant. The defendant did it during the offense of conviction, it's relevant. Yes, when the guideline says give 5 offense level increase, you have relevant conduct of a firearm being possessed by the defendant, you give the 5 offense level increase. But say our defendant did rob this bank with others, and our defendant didn't carry the gun, the other guy carried the gun. When the offense level says give five levels if a firearm was possessed, is our defendant going to get that or not? The three-step analysis. Was our defendant engaged in jointly undertaking activity with this other person? And what was that scope? Well, the undertaking, undertaking that our defendant had was the robbery. Was this act of this other person, this act we're looking at, the carrying of the gun, was that in furtherance of this robbery? Hmm. He pointed that the teller's they did, did seem to give money a lot more quickly when he did so. seems to have been in furtherance of the undertaking. And then finally, would a reasonable person who has undertaken a robbery with someone else have foreseen that someone may have used a weapon during a crime of violence? And you have to answer that as well in the affirmative. If so, then even though it's an act of someone else, it is relevant conduct And being relevant conduct, the defendants held accountable for it. This defendant and that defendant, they robbed a bank together. Hmm, what was the scope of the conspiracy? Well, the scope of the conspiracy was to rob the bank. Sometimes the conspiracy and what the defendant has undertaken are mirror images of each other. They are one and the same. But that is not always the case the scope of the criminal activity jointly undertaken by the defendant is not necessarily the same as the scope of the entire conspiracy. The examples would be uh, the defendant is, is convicted of a conspiracy count, uh, and the conspiracy count has your defendant and a hundred other people engaged in a conspiracy to import drugs on a hundred different occasions into the country. Well, your defendant is criminally responsible, criminally liable for this conspiracy, having been convicted of it. But for sentencing purposes, we say, well, what this defendant undertook may not be the same as this entire conspiracy. And you have to look at the facts and say, well, this defendant's undertaking actually was the importation of drugs on three occasions. Out of those hundreds of importations, this defendant was engaged in three of those. You have narrowed down from this entire conspiracy the the undertaking of this particular defendant. Reason to be foreseeable. We have that language about reason to be foreseeable. Reason to be foreseeable is the language in our three-step analysis, three-part analysis for holding the defendant accountable for the acts of others. As such, reasonable foreseeability applies only to the conduct of others it does not apply to the acts of the defendant. For instance, the defendant is convicted, say, of the conspiracy. And the act of the defendant in the conspiracy was the defendant brought in the bag of drugs that contained two kilos of heroin. Well, turns out, the defendant says, gosh, I had no idea I was bringing in heroin. I thought it was cocaine. And I didn't realize it was two kilos. It felt like about a kilo and a half to me, you know. And the question is, well, gee, would that have been reasonably foreseeable to the defendant that he was carrying heroin instead of cocaine and that it was two kilos instead of a half kilo? You don't even have to go there. Because if the defendant did it and it occurred during the offense conviction, the defendant's responsible for that. So reasonable foreseeability isn't something we're looking at in regard to the acts of the defendant. That's when we're looking at the acts of others. And as we look at the acts of others, keep in mind it's only one part of the three-part analysis of looking at the acts of others. For instance, the defendant, out of these 100 importations, with these hundreds of people over this long period of time, undertook three of those importations.
4: First time failure to register in the state of Nevada as a sex offender is a category D felony carrying a prison term of up to four years. Failure to register for a second time or more in the state of Nevada is a category C felony, which carries a prison sentence of up to five years. Additionally, you can only request the district court to eliminate your requirement of registration if you have registered for 15 years consecutively. So failing to register would cause that time clock to start anew and delay your ability to seek to have the court end that requirement.
7: Hello, I'm Michael Castile, an attorney with the Las Vegas Defense Group. Other than the crime of murder, in Nevada, sexual assault is the most serious offense you can face in this state. If you are convicted, in addition to facing a lifelong prison term, you're also required to register for life as a sex offender. Even if eventually you are paroled, it may be difficult to land a job with this on your record. In Nevada, the legal definition of sexual assault, otherwise known as rape, is when a person subjects another person to penetration sexually, against the will of the victim, or under conditions in which the perpetrator knows or should know the victim is mentally or physically incapable of resisting. In short, it's illegal for you to have sex with someone against a person's will or when you know or should have known the person lacked the capacity to say no or to understand what was happening. In some cases, where someone unlawfully touches another person in a sexual manner that falls short of sexual assault, such as groping for example, he or she might be charged with the lesser Nevada crime of open and gross lewdness. In Nevada, even though rape is one of the most serious crimes you can be accused of, it also lends itself to several effective defenses. The following are some of the strategies a defense lawyer may employ in Nevada sexual assault cases. Number one, false accusations. Judges and prosecutors know that innocent people can be falsely accused of rape, whether it's out of anger, jealousy, revenge, a way to win child custody, or just an honest misunderstanding. If your attorney can raise a reasonable doubt by showing that someone may have falsely accused you, your sexual assault case should be dismissed. Number two, lack of proof. Unless there was a video recording of the incident, sexual assault can be extremely difficult to prove because it often comes down to a case of he says, she says. As long as the state cannot show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, sexual assault charges should be dropped. And finally, number three, consent. Rape is forcing someone to have sex against their will or when they're too incapacitated to resist. Therefore, if your attorney can show that the victim gave his or her consent to have sex, the Nevada sexual assault charges cannot stand. If you or someone you know has been charged with sexual assault, Please don't hesitate to contact our law office at 702-DEFENSE to arrange for your free consultation or visit us at 702defense.com for more information. Thank you. I want to introduce you to a
9: well-educated man who went to prison. We're going to hear about why he went to prison and what he did while he was in prison. David, thanks so much for being on the program. Tell us a little bit about your background before we get into your prison experience.
12: Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I was a practicing and licensed attorney in the state of Illinois for almost 15 years prior to becoming a uh, management member of a, of a startup biotech company in the Chicago area. Uh, and uh, that ultimately led me to prison, uh, where I was convicted uh, in uh, the early 2000s of a white collar crime of uh, wire and mail fraud. Uh, Let, let's
9: talk about that for a second because people might have some level of, you know, that, that doesn't seem congruent. You're, a, you're an attorney, uh, you later became a CEO and that you found and yet you found yourself in the crosshairs of prosecutors tell us a little bit about what it felt like to learn that the department of justice was targeting you for prosecution
12: the case ultimately began as a uh, securities and exchange commission civil case and there was a referral as i understood it made to the uh, us uh, attorney's office in, in the northern district of illinois how long did different. that
9: take? You found out that there was a SEC investigation, and was there actually a finding in the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation?
12: No, actually. That began, the SEC investigation began uh, in early 2002,
11: uh,
12: and uh, the SEC uh, ultimately did not uh, come to a conclusion in that case until after the criminal case was resolved. It was actually put on hold during the dependency of the criminal case.
9: So the so cases were going simultaneously. First there was a Securities correct. Exchange Commission case, then that was put on hold and the DOJ picked it up. Is that right? That's correct. And when you found out that you were a target of, of, uh, criminal charges, what did you do? Did you, did you agree to cooperate or did you go to trial or, or did you plead guilty? What did you do?
12: Well, when I first found out I was a Target, it was during a, uh, a raid of our corporate facilities. And I wasn't told I was a Target, but it was basically a common sense conclusion. I hired an attorney at that time and uh, the case ultimately was not prosecuted or the initiation of the prosecution didn't begin for another two to three years. So there was a, a long period of time that I remained the CEO of the company and chairman of the board, but then ultimately I relinquished those positions. Others came involved and-, and
9: Tell us about that's that. That's, that's interesting. So you, there, the, the Department of Justice raided your facility, then there was a two or three year period before you were charged. Is that what I understood you to say? That's correct. And were you operating uh, in the capacity as if this was going to be, you were going to be exonerated from that raid? Or were you concerned that there could possibly be criminal implications?
12: I was quite concerned there was likely to be criminal uh, repercussions. The problem was that if the company shut its doors at that point, there certainly would have been, in my view, criminal repercussions. So I continued as I was.
9: So you continued, and then ultimately they returned an indictment. Did they arrest you, or did they just
12: serve you? I was not. I was never arrested. Uh, I had counsel at that point, who the U.S. attorney was familiar with. So I, uh, I, uh, I just it was a uh, no cash. Uh, self-recognizance bond scenario where I simply appeared for my arraignment.
9: And you appeared for your arraignment and then how did it ultimately end up with regard to the adjudication of that case? Did you plead guilty or did you go to trial?
12: I ultimately pled guilty approximately two years later.
9: What was the cost of litigating that case? Do you recall, David?
12: Um, I believe it was $25,000.
9: So not a tremendous amount of legal, legal fees at that time. Um, were you happy with the representation you received? Yes. And you ultimately agreed to plead guilty to a sentence of how long?
12: 14 years. Well, Well, let me, let me backtrack. I did not agree to a, a fixed term of incarceration. Um, we simply agreed to plead guilty without a determination or agreement on the loss figure, which is the large driver of the sentence ultimately in these mail fraud, wire fraud cases, uh, my responsibility for a particular loss figure. So because that was left open, I didn't agree to an uh, amount of years. That was never What were seen. you
9: anticipating with regard to a sentence when you agreed to take the plea agreement?
12: Uh, In the area of 10 years, it was, uh, I was told by my counsels at that point, because I also had sentencing, uh, a specialist in sentencing at that point, that they were confident that I would be able to get to a minimum security camp initially. That did not occur.
9: So you thought that you would get 10 years. Had you not gone, had you not accepted
1: that back? That's in the 90s and the 80s. That that mindset exists. It's not relevant now. Only people that that's relevant to is people who won't acquire new information and don't stay up to date with systems, right? Because there's no way that you can look at a vehicle unless you just don't have the information. I got friends that make six figures off of vehicles. No way you're gonna tell me that that's a, a liability. It's a liability if we don't utilize it right. So then I started telling people. I said, "Listen, you want you want to learn? Okay, here." Let's take a car, like a smart car, right? I went and found the littlest car, right? Littlest car that nobody wants. I'm, when I tell you, right, it's the smart car for two, right? Listen to me, I'll right? Be honest, I, I didn't think it was yours when I saw it. I did. Right? I saw you driving. I said, it's yes. <laughs> yeah, right." And I'm like, yo, I like I put music in and everything. It yeah. Got beat. I'm like, you listen. Funny thing is that I buy the smart car and then. Not only so I buy a smart car, I tell people, listen, let me explain something to you. I got the smart car and this is what I teach people as well. I say, look, you can go to a uh, swap lease and literally do a lease takeover, put no money down out of pocket, get a car that costs $200 a month. This vehicle costs $200 a month. Now what happens next? Since this vehicle costs $200 a month, I say, hey, yo, listen, earn your leisure. I got a car that's going to be in, in downtown Metro Atlanta. 12 hours a day, it'll probably get exposed to about 20, 30,000 people a month. Yo, give me 200 bucks. I want to put, earn your leisure on the left side in your company promotion. Is that something that you'll be okay with? 200, we'll do it. Sold. lights, right? That That's that's light. Okay, well, guess what? I'm going to get somebody else to put their business on the, on the right side. I'm gonna get another business to put their business on the back of the door, on the back of the vehicle, right? I now make six hundred bucks off a two hundred dollar liability. Then I, they say, well, how are you gonna keep it in Metro Atlanta for twelve hours a day? You gonna drive it? No, I'm gonna go and hire somebody to drive it. So now. I'm going well, to rent the car out to somebody who want to drive for Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, one of the grocery delivery services. Look, give me 150 a week. You don't pay gas or insurance. You give me 150 a week and you use the vehicle. Now I got and you use the car six hours a day. You got options. You got um, access to a six hours a day, seven days a week. That's one person. I do two people. So now. That's 12 hours. That's a 12-hour shift in the day. That's two people paying me 150 150 a week, that's $300. That's $1,200 a month. So now I'm making $1,200 a month off the drivers, $600 off the advertisement. That's $1,800 a month. $1,600 of that is profit. I'm making $1,600 profit off of one vehicle that they said was a, 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 a liability. If I got two cars i'm thirty two hundred dollars to the good every month to the good thirty two hundred dollars a month straight cash on me it's what it's one of the best things i've heard you say man mindset is the only liability it's and it, now you make thirty two hundred dollars a month imagine this what's your background need to be what do you need a degree in that's thirty two hundred dollars a month paying for a vehicle now if you if you really get tricky and you understand is that then you go well it's other cars out there and you can look up it's websites that attack and say hey look these cars perform the best on toro right you can literally get one of those cars and then make it pay for your other ones or you just use it as income you come home and you're like yo i got my credit together but i don't know what to do with it how do I turn my credit to cash? That's one of the credit to cash strategies. Is actually learning how to execute and and learn systems. I want I, wa- I want to talk about something that was a whole lot of game. Um, what you're known for, and that's turning credit into cash.
2: Mm-hmm. Most people, when we think credit cards and how we get cash from it, is like, "Yo, if we
1: get a cash advance, then we can take money out from it." Yeah, but your strategy has no cash advance. And it stills liquid in. Can you break that down? So it's a little bit different. Like I, It's a whole bunch of different ways, right, when it comes to, like, turning credit to cash. And I tell people, one, you don't ever want to do – if you had to pull money out doing the cash advance, they're going to charge you more. And they hit you with extra fees and a higher percentage. So I tell people kind of stay away from the cash advances. But I do things like – It's just ways to generate cash, especially like my mindset is entrepreneur at all times. So like I tell people do things like, you know, knowing which credit cards to use to do certain things. Um, For example, um, if I go and run ads, right, like I could run ads and when I run ads, I can run ads and generate income back. But if I wanted to, like, pull money off, like what you just said, something like you just said, like, trying to pull money off without doing a cash advance fee, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we used to do for fun is, like, I would go on a cruise, and because when I go on a cruise ship, guess what happens on a cruise ship? Is that they give you the debit card, the room key. Mm-hmm. So, when I go on a cruise ship and use the room key, I would just go to the casino and get 20 30000 in chip.
4: I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney, Michael Becker. There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, Casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them, face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702 Defense. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights
11: offense levels would that be applicable in our scenario here okay so this guy's going from a 20 to a 22 uh, firearm weapon or threat of death and that can be anywhere from two additional offense levels up to seven depends upon type of weapon and the use made of that weapon okay so the guidelines would have you add five additional offense levels as you're, if you're looking in your guidelines. Man, you see, this guy's going to pick up five more levels for, for the possession of the firearm. Uh, how about victim injury? There was a victim injured, and what was the degree of injury? Bodily injury. Now, of course, bodily injury, you know, you saying, well, what is bodily injury? We well, you know the person got pushed, they had this injury. What was the degree? Again, as you're applying these guidelines, the Commission has, following the guideline itself, commentary that includes application notes. And there's a lot of definitions. A lot of definitions are contained there uh, to include what were definitions of injury. We send you back to somewhere else in the book to locate those. But definitions. Uh, of injury, of weapon, other things that you will be considering in the application of the guidelines, we have definitions for those things. Uh, Another just general point is you go through guidelines application for instance here in chapter 2 and elsewhere, uh, the guideline application is cumulative. You started with the 20 and it was a bank, you added two levels, and there was the firearm possessed, you've added the five levels. In other words, it's a cumulative uh, application as you go through. However, within a subset, for instance, we looked at weaponry a while ago. Well, you may have the guy that goes in, you know, loaded for bear, he has the gun, he has the knife, he's discharging the gun, he's using the knife, and it's like, whoa, now that I give a seven plus a five plus a four, or whatever, I mean, you're adding all this up. It is not cumulative within a subset. Within a subset, If more than one is applicable, as would be that set of facts, you would give the highest of those that are applicable. If more than one is applicable, as would, say, always be the case, if you discharge a firearm, obviously you possessed it if you discharged it, uh, you're not going to give the five for the possession and the seven for the discharge. You just give the higher or highest, uh, as would be applicable, if more than one uh, could be applied. We have a definition of loss that's the value of property taken, damaged, or destroyed. So depending upon what was taken, what was damaged, what was destroyed in this robbery, all that adds up and represents a loss figure. In our scenario at hand, we had uh, loss of uh, $18,000, so that's more than $10,000, and picks up an additional offense level. And again, you'll notice that recovery doesn't make a difference. There was a guy, hey, I took $18,000, I'm going out the door, you got the die pack going off, this money's no good, I'm running, the defendant still has taken $18,000, even if recovered. Or if restitution had been paid, maybe they didn't, never recovered it, but the defendant's paid full restitution, still there was that amount that was taken under our definition of laws the concern that we have here is on the cross-reference suddenly you know this defendant who was operating at offense level 32 you know if if a victim was murdered in this in this robbery then we would cross-reference you would say well that 32 number we're not going to use that we're going to cross reference over to the guidelines for first-degree murder and the offense level we're going to use instead is going to be 43. So we've jumped the guy from a 32 to 43. Now, the jury hasn't come back to make any finding that this guy was convicted of, of murder, because he's not convicted of murder. This guy's convicted of robbery. The maximum statutory penalty for armed robbery is 25 years. So the question is, is this going to be a guy whose sentence the commission feels is more appropriately down towards, say, one day of imprisonment or who sentence more appropriately is up around 25 years of imprisonment and to make that determination the commission has you look at a number of factors as to what occurred in this offense and again not looking at it beyond a reasonable doubt but once you're applying these guidelines looking at it at a preponderance of evidence standard as has typically been used in sentencing and the commission, by sending you on a cross-reference, even though we cross reference you to the murder guideline and we're using the 43 if that cross-reference occurs, this defendant still is not looking at what the penalty would be for murder, which is life. This defendant is still looking at a maximum of 25 years. Now, the 43 in the calculations, this guy's probably going to end up with a guideline range that's going to be in excess of 25 years, I dare say. But nonetheless, the maximum exposure of this defendant is 25 years. The statute will trump the guidelines. This is going to be one of the defendants who's going to get a sentence that's going to be right at 25 years. Now the concern, of course, is does the commission think it's fair to bump this guy up closer to 25 years when he hasn't been convicted of the more serious offense of of, uh, murder. And I would have to say that, yes, the Commission obviously has taken those things into consideration in formulating the guidelines in this fashion. Okay, now having completed your Chapter 2 calculations, coming up with uh, a number, and you notice we're still on our Worksheet A on page uh, 48, we're about halfway down that worksheet. We have a 32 from our chapter two calculations. But then we go to
6: in the uh, event that that is advantageous to their position. So this is subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell. That is one of the initial topics that you will cover in civil procedure. Some of your professors may begin with subject matter jurisdiction. I begin with the next topic, which is personal jurisdiction. So I'm going to talk about that right now. Personal jurisdiction also relates to where can this lawsuit be brought. So we've talked about federal versus state court, a very important initial determination. But we haven't talked about geographically which federal court we're talking about. Are we talking about a federal court in... Tennessee, Vermont, etc. Where is this going to go? Personal jurisdiction is an important limitation on your choices in that regard. You can only bring this lawsuit in a court that would have jurisdiction over the defendant. So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the topic of the lawsuit, over the subject of the suit, but you also have to have jurisdiction over The defendant or the defendants, if there are many defendants. Personal jurisdiction rules lay that out. So, here we have a situation where there's a plaintiff from New York and a defendant from Texas. What courts might have jurisdiction over this dispute? Well, one easy one that you learn about is Texas. Because the defendant is from Texas, you can sue them in Texas for anything. I'm from Virginia, anyone who has a legal dispute with me can come to Virginia and sue me here because I'm a citizen of Virginia. Again, you'll learn what it means to be a citizen of a place. You're not just a citizen of a place because you're physically located there. There's other things, subjective and objective, that go into that determination that you'll learn about. So Texas courts could hear this case. They would have jurisdiction. Would New York courts have jurisdiction over this case? Well, the defendant's not a citizen of New York. The plaintiff is, as you'll learn. Doesn't matter that the plaintiff is a citizen of the state in question. That's not going to render the defendant subject to jurisdiction there. Uh, that doesn't mean this case can't be litigated there. Under what circumstances might this case be litigated? in New York and in a way that there will be jurisdiction over the defendant. If the car accident happened in New York, if the car accident happened in New York, then you can sue the defendant in New York regardless of where they're from. Same thing if we were talking about Wyoming. Can this case be brought in Wyoming? Well, not based on the citizenship of the defendant, but if the car accident occurred in Wyoming, then we don't have a problem. It can be litigated there. So, personal jurisdiction is going to be based in part on citizenship, but mostly what you're going to be studying is the circumstances under which jurisdiction is based on the incident and the defendant's connection with the state through the dispute or through what happened that gave rise to the dispute, something we call specific jurisdiction. So, personal jurisdiction is something that is a very important initial determination that has to be made before you can select a court where you're going to litigate a case. Now, personal jurisdiction is not the end of the where. We're still dealing with this where question. Federal versus state, we've already determined that personal jurisdiction. I've given you some sense of that. There's another requirement. And this is called venue. Now, you would think we've done enough to figure this out. All right, I've got the federal court. Now I know I can go to Texas because the person's from Texas. That's not good enough. Why not? Because if we're in federal court, there are four districts in Texas. Texas has four federal districts. New York has four federal districts. California has four federal districts. Virginia has two federal districts. Some states only have one district, like Delaware, Maryland. So venue is based on congressionally enacted statutes, and that tells us which district among all of the 94 federal district courts we can use to bring this case. So I may have personal jurisdiction throughout Texas over this person, but I need to know which district to go to. We're talking about an individual defendant here who's from Texas. We need to know which part of Texas he is from. Taking Virginia as an example, I live here in Charlottesville. This is in the western district of Virginia. So if someone wants to sue me in federal court, there's citizenship in Virginia. So Virginia state courts and federal courts would have personal jurisdiction over me throughout Virginia. But if this person brought the lawsuit against me in Richmond, I'm- as real as
5: they come,
7: all my beats tailored by digital.
5: Maserati Rick in Detroit, the Convertible bird in Miami, graduated summa cum laude, strip club made a tsunami. Carlton Hans with the ball game, Grateful Edmonds with the snowflakes, Craig Pettison in M Town, Sal McGluder with the boat game, Falcone with the cocaine, like Freeway Ricky with the plug game, like Monster Cody in South Central, Larry Davis from Clo- um, I don't have an issue with Troy Av. Yeah. I think his music is mediocre, and he, like, tried to, like, portray this image that he was, like, making greater music than everybody in the city when he wasn't. You know, it was, like, a time, like, when Bobby Schmerder was the hottest person in the city. He was trying to say he was the best, trying to take the—you know, I was, like, I had to, like, be the person to interrupt that, so I just feel like he's, like, a fraud rapper. Like, he never was a drug dealer. Like, this dude is just weird. You know what I mean? So— That's really it. It's no issues with Trey. So what
8: did you say that kind of got, because he just released a diss song about you. So Yeah, like a a
5: three-minute diss record. I think it was his best record ever. I I actually liked the record. I played it 76 times. Um, What did I do? Um, I bothered him for five years, like, just on social media, just, you know, just calling him out on different things, you know what I mean? He likes to bully like little scrawny white people, but when it come to, you know, dudes this. You know he think to take him on, he falls back So I, I think at this point he decided to attack me After five years of attacking him Is because now I'm like on MTV and shit like that And I have like a podcast that's jumping off tax season. so I feel like he probably just used that like Oh yeah, I know he ain't gonna jump all the way out the window But you know, he's he's not too smart Twitter fingers, how many times you gonna tweet I'm always on the fly, guess gets you too scared to meet me Hell no. I've confronted him, though. No. I've been in his his video shoots with Maino. This was last year, April, and I've been harassing him for five years. So he needs to stop it. You know, he knows. Uh, you know, it's just it's some shit. He just, and you know, that was some backed up shit for you to rap about a nigga that don't rap for three minutes. You know what I mean? Like, that was deep. My favorite line was, Cass beat you up in jail. <laughs> guess what y'all cash did beat me up in jail but guess what i beat cast up three times before that He got me arrested. You know what I mean? I'm like, what the fuck do you mean, my nigga? Like, so what? I lost mad fights. Niggas telling you, still want to fight me, though. You know what I mean?
8: (laughs)
0: Chief is one of the most iconic rappers in hip hop history. At only 15 years old, the Southside Chicago rapper took the rap game by storm after being one of the first people to really put Chicago drill music on the map. Chief Keef's demonic style of hip hop was like nothing we've ever seen before and had everyone from the streets all the way to the suburbs anxiously awaiting for the next Chief Keef record to be released. But it wasn't just the sound of the music that created all this hype around Chief Keef and the Chicago drill scene. It was rather the actual lyrics that he was saying in his music. It was all authentic. Nobody even questioned it for a second. All it took was 30 seconds of a Chief Keef song and a music video to figure out that Sosa was about that life. Whether he did the dirt himself or was around people who did, everyone knew that there wasn't any lies being told in his music. And Keef and his affiliates have the rap sheet to prove it. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Chief Keef.
11: Going,
0: oh, it. Chief Keefe's first documented run-in with the law happened at the age of 15 on January 27, 2011. Details are scarce on this arrest, but from what the charges say, a young sosa was either caught at the trap house or in the process of selling from what was produced from the trap house. Whatever it was, Chief Keefe was detained in the act and was charged with manufacture and delivery of heroin near a school, public housing building, or park. Chief was charged with a Class X felony, but keep in mind he was only 15 at the time, which obviously made him a minor. In Chicago, juvenile offenders are found to be delinquent of charges rather than guilty of the charges. Sosa was led out of jail but sentenced to home confinement on the charge. The second arrest of Chief Keefe happened on December 2, 2011, almost a year after his first arrest. Sources say that the police responded to a call of shots fired in the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. When officers arrived, they spotted Chief Keefe walking out of the front door of his grandma's apartment complex in the 6100 block of South Michigan Avenue, holding a coat over his hands that were in front of his waistband. Officers tried to stop and question the chief, but instead of cooperating, Sosa dropped the coat, flashed a blue steel handgun, and sprinted through the vacant lot next door to the apartments. Several officers immediately gave chase to the fleeing chief, who allegedly would stop and turn towards the police and point his pistol at the officers. This caused the officers to pull out their weapons as well, and even though Sosa did not shoot at the officers, the officers shot at him multiple times, but missed. After shots were fired, Chief Keefe continued running for his life before other officers caught him a half a block away in an alley of the 6100 block of South Indiana Avenue. One officer claimed to have suffered multiple bruises in the act of trying to detain the chief. They also alleged that Chief Keefe ditched his pistol throughout the chase, but it was soon recovered moments later, completely loaded and ready to go. Chief Keefe was charged with four felonies for this incident, which included three counts of aggravated assault with a firearm on an officer and aggravated unlawful use of a weapon. They also charged the chief with a misdemeanor charge of resisting arrest. Sosa was held in the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center for a good while until the judge sentenced the chief to house arrest at his grandma's house. This next incident wasn't an arrest, but rather a pretty well-known investigation involving Chief Keefe about a murder of a rival rapper, Lil' Jojo. For those of you who are unaware, Chief Keefe and the rest of GBE were going back and forth with a rival rapper named Lil' Jojo. Just days before the tragic slang of Lil' Jojo, a video went viral of one of Chief Keef's good friends, Lil' Reese, threatening to kill Lil' Jojo after Jojo drove by their neighborhood, taunting them. Later that week, Jojo was killed while riding his bike. Chief Keef took to Twitter the day after the incident, tweeting, It's sad, cause Jojo just wanted to be like us. Hashtag LMAO. Despite the clear taunting online, no charges were filed. It is possible that no charges were filed due to Chief Keefe claiming a hacker tweeted those tweets, but JoJo's brother begs to differ. Whatever the case may be, JoJo's murder is still unsolved to this day. After a few months of staying out of trouble, Chief Keefe was ordered back into court for a probation violation stemming from a previous gun conviction. Authorities say that Keefe went to a gun range for a music video shoot in New York. Chief Keefe apparently wasn't allowed to be anywhere near firearms as one of the conditions of his probation, so when the judge found out about this, he wasn't happy. The judge sentenced Keefe to 60 days in juvenile detention. At the sentencing, Chief Keefe said to the judge, I'm a very good-hearted person, and I'm sorry for anything I've done wrong. Give me a chance, and then three months after his last sentencing, Chief Keefe was arrested yet again in Atlanta for disorderly conduct after a security guard at Lay Meridian
12: Atlanta Perimeter Hotel called 911 on the chief after claiming he was rolling.